Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Well, that's still going on today, isn't it? And down through the years, millions of individuals have turned from their sins and trusted him alone for their salvation. Christians, believers on the Lord Jesus Christ, they now belong to him. Do you have a time in your life when you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Were you ever awakened to the fact that you're a sinner in need of having your sins forgiven in order to be made right with God? Have you ever received Him as your own and personal Savior and Lord and experienced the joy of salvation? Well, we hope that you have. Today's broadcast is directed toward believers and it's concerned with something that unfortunately may come into our lives. Doubts. That's right, doubts. And questions such as this. Am I really saved? Can I be sure that everything is settled for eternity? Evangelist and teacher Eugene Higgins takes up the issue of doubts in the mind of a believer. And there are many causes, and he describes some of them. But he also gives us the cure. And if you're a believer, we hope that today's message will be of help to you in your Christian life. I'd like to read in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. I would like to consider with you tonight for a few moments the subject of assurance. Assurance. Whenever John writes, he seems to be very clear about why he's writing. Why he writes, he's very explicit. You will notice that in John chapter 20, he tells us why he wrote what he wrote. He says, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. In the very next chapter, chapter 21, he tells us why he didn't write what he didn't write. He said the world itself could not contain or actually lay hold of or, or apprehend what I could write about the Lord Jesus if I wrote everything that he did. So when you come to his first letter, notice that he is constantly telling the believers, and by extension us, why he wrote this letter. He tells us, for instance, in chapter 1, that he wrote for their joy. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. He tells us in chapter 2, that he wrote for their preservation. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Later in the chapter, verse 26, he tells them he is writing for their stability. These things have I written unto you concerning them that would seduce you. So he's writing for their joy. He's writing for their preservation. He's writing for their stability. And he's writing for their assurance. He says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's that last one, that last point that I want to consider with you tonight. It may be going too far to say that there's an epidemic of doubt among us. But there certainly is a disease called doubt that afflicts some of the Lord's dear people. 
I don't want to address tonight any here who may be questioning whether the Bible is the word of God and is Christianity valid. I, I don't have the ability nor the time to handle that. But I do want to address myself to some here who may be limping through life wondering, am I really saved? Doubting, fearful, you've trusted Christ and yet every gospel meeting you worry. Every time you think of the Lord's coming, you tremble. Every time you, you think about death, you wonder, am I really saved? So let me just break the subject into three. I want to consider with you, first of all, facing doubts and then embracing the doctrine, and then finally replacing despair. That will allow us to think, first of all, about why doubts arise, when doubts are resolved, and how doubts are destroyed. Just so I don't make a mistake of getting through the meeting without emphasizing the really important thing, that the cure, the cure for a believer's fearfulness is sound doctrine. But if I do not understand doctrine, if I don't understand what the New Testament is saying, about salvation, for instance. I will have no basis to enjoy the practical application of ministry. The more I understand what the Bible is teaching, the more grounded I will be when it comes to salvation. So think with me, first of all, about facing the doubts. This is the seed of doubt now. Why did doubts arise? I think that the greatest cause of anguish to a sincere soul, and you must understand that's who I'm speaking to tonight, sincere souls. If you are a sincere believer and you open your heart to the word of God, then it's you to whom I'm speaking. The greatest cause of anguish to a sincere soul in doubt is whether the thoughts that that person is having are coming from the devil or from God. Our minds are affected by many things, and we need to understand that. They are affected by diabolic and satanic insinuations. Isn't that where it all started as far as sin was concerned? When the devil said to Eve, yea, if God said, is that really? Is, what was he doing? He was insinuating something about God. He was planting a seed of doubt in her mind. Isn't that what happened in the case of Peter? Where did the thought come from when Peter said, this be far from thee, Lord? A cross? Death? Calvary? This be far from thee, Lord. What did the Lord Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. What had happened? The devil had been able to plant a thought in the mind of Peter. The devil is not omniscient. He does not know what you are thinking right now. He cannot detect what you will be thinking tomorrow but he can plant thoughts in our mind. In other words, would you, if you're a young believer, would you please remember this? Not every thought you have is your thought. Not every thought you think is what you believe because the devil is able, just as he planted something in the mind of David, I shall one day perish at the hand of Saul. Where did that come from? And what was it that drove David out of the land and into behavior that was so unbecoming for someone who knew God? The thought had come from the devil. Now, Paul has given us a key when it comes to this, hasn't he? When he says in Ephesians chapter 6 that they are fiery darts, fiery darts. And what I have often noticed is this, that when it is God at work, when it is God at work, there's something solid from the Bible that is disturbing a person and is working away in that person's conscience. But when it is the devil at work, it's just like a fiery dart. It's like out of the blue, a thought comes, maybe the Bible isn't true. Maybe there is no God. Maybe this is all a fake. Maybe you're not saved at all. They're just quick thoughts that aren't founded on anything biblical, but they just come and they pierce and they burn like a fiery dart. So I need to remember that my mind can be affected by satanic insinuation, but it can be affected by physical weariness. I learned that from Elijah. There is an inseparable, if intangible, link between our physical condition and our spiritual mood. And Elijah, with feelings of hopelessness and despair and failure, that stemmed in great part from the sudden letdown after the mighty victory on Mount Carmel and this tremendous race from Jezebel, exhausted. He flings himself under the juniper bush and says, that's it, Lord, it's enough. 
take away my life. I haven't accomplished anything, and I'm the only one that's left. Everybody else has turned away from thee, and there's nobody but me, and what's the point of my living anymore? Now, by the way, would you please notice God's remedy for that man? Put him to sleep. Woke him up so that he could have something to eat and then put him back to sleep. Because there is an inseparable link between your physical condition and your spiritual mood. You cannot get on the treadmill in this life and run yourself ragged physically and expect that you will just be fresh and enjoying God's things because there is a link between my physical condition and my spiritual mood. But I think emotional exhaustion comes in here as well. Not just satanic insinuation, not just physical weariness, but emotional exhaustion. Because David ran and hid and then ran and hid some more and eventually... It was not so much physical but emotional weariness that caused him to say, I shall one day perish at the hand of Saul. He was thinking to himself, it can't go on like this. Day after day, I, I'm turning right and Saul's turning left. One day he will turn that way and I, I will make a mistake. He will get me. I know he will. Now, there is an interesting verse in the Proverbs that says this. The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear. Got that? And of course, what it is saying is that your spirit will sustain you through great physical trial and difficulty. You have sensed that. You have seen that in yourself and in others. You've gone through a trial, and you would hardly have imagined you'd be able to go through, but God gave you grace, and you were sustained through that. And you went through a physical difficulty, and you were sustained. But then the wise man says, when the wound is to the spirit, then what is there to sustain the person? See? When it's not physical, but it's emotional, as it was in the case of David, who can bear that can affect us. Two more. Spiritual weakness. I think of Israel at Rephidim when they were failing to eat the manna and a ruthless, unprincipled foe called Amalek came against them. And a people who had allowed themselves to become weak were no match for this traitorous foe that was attacking from behind. So a believer starts to absent himself from the meetings. She's become discouraged and she's no longer reading her Bible. There used to be some time alone with God, but that's gone by the board now. And that believer is draining the battery of his or her spiritual vitality. And he or she is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And then they do something that they thought they would never do. And they begin to think, how could I be saved? How could I have thought that? Am I really a Christian to have a thought like that? Could I really be saved and do what I did? And of course, the problem comes back to the fact that that believer has allowed himself to become spiritually weak. One more before I leave the subject. I want you to think about a rational comparison with others. And maybe, and the reason I'm saying this is because from my experience, this may be the killer. This may be the one that most stumbles a young believer. Remember Moses and his brother Aaron? Remember Moses thinking, I'm not a spokesman. Get Aaron. Aaron, Aaron has a way with words. Take him. Remember Saul and David? Remember Saul listening and the black mood that settled on Saul when he heard the people say, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousand. And as he began to compare himself with others, with David in this case, the depression settled in. Of course, we forget, don't we, that Christianity doesn't change a person's personality. God takes you as you are. And when he makes you a new creation in Christ Jesus, he doesn't suddenly convert your personality into something different from what you were. If you tended to be retiring and quiet and shy, you will likely be a retiring and quiet and shy believer. If you've read the life of William Carey, then you know what a remarkable man he was in his service for God. He was saved as a young man. And he devoured Christian books and studied the Bible intently. And uh, in fact, he was a, a cobbler. He was a shoemaker. And they dubbed his workshop Carrie's College because whenever you walked in, the man was talking about the Bible. Happy, 
young Christian, thankful to God that Christ had saved them. I told you that doctrine was vital, didn't I? Because not long after that, William Carey began attending services at a place that was bordering on the mystic and the charismatic. And the emphasis was on the deep spiritual life. And they convinced William Carey that there was something missing from his life. And he spent three, what he called, horrible years of wondering whether he was really saved. And then someone gave him a book. It was called A Help to Zion's Travelers by a man named Robert Hall. 20 years of age, Carey sat down to read that book, and this is what he said, quote, I could not put it down. Having been looking into my own heart for months and months to see if I really did have feelings for Christ, this book told me to look out to Christ, and to trust him. That's where doubts come from, among other things. You do not get rid of doubts by ignoring them. You do not get rid of doubts by denying them. You do not get rid of doubts by burying them. You need to face them. And by facing them, I would like to suggest to you the idea of how doubts are resolved. And that is, of course, the idea of embracing the doctrine. We need to apprehend the grace that has reached us. To lay hold of what the Bible teaches about what grace has done for us. In the Peanuts comic strip, Linus is the resident Bible scholar. And one day, Lucy's looking out the window and it's pouring rain. And she says, boy, look at it rain. What if the world floods? And Linus says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis, God promised Noah that that would never happen again. And the rainbow is the promise, the sign of his promise. And his sister says, Linus, you have taken a great load off my mind. And Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. Sound theology has a way of doing that. Now, sound theology has a way of grounding a believer in truth instead of in feelings. If I were to grasp what the grace of God has done in my life, it would eliminate much of this uh, feeling I often have that I have failed as a Christian and therefore maybe I am not saved. Do you remember that it was in the context of legalism that Paul asked the Galatians, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? Now, again, he was talking about law keeping. But just take that into our own life. When you began, did you not begin by grace? So now have you all of a sudden shifted onto the footing of merit? You began deserving nothing. Now, are you and God working on the merit basis where if you do so many good things, God shows you so much love and favor. And if you fail, then somehow you become a second rate citizen in God's kingdom. It was grace that saved us, wasn't it? We have been justified freely by his grace. It's grace that brought forgiveness to us, isn't it? We have forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. It's grace that called us. We've been called by grace. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And it is grace that has made us heirs of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lay hold of that. Lay hold of those promises. If you have read John Bunyan's immortal classic, Pilgrim's Progress, you will remember when hopeful and Christian were taken by giant despair and they were thrown into Doubting Castle. Doubting Castle. And the giant would come down and he would beat them with a huge cudgel until they were sore and beaten and bleeding and they were feeling absolutely miserable. And he advised them that since they were likely never to get out of that prison, that they might as well just, with knife or halter or poison were his words, you might as well just end your life. This is what Christian said. He turned to Hopeful and he said, Brother, what shall we do? The life that we now live is miserable. For my part, I know not whether it is best to live thus or die out of hand. My soul chooses strangling rather than life. And the grave is more easy for me than this dungeon. 
Catch the despair? I mean, that's who had captured him. Giant despair. Catch the doubts? That's the castle in which he was. Do you remember how he got out? He goes on to say all of a sudden, What a fool am I? What a fool am I? Thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will I am persuaded open any lock in Doubting Castle. So he takes out his key, promise, and every door opens and every cell flings wide and out they come out of the castle because promise overcame despair and doubting. It is as I take the word of God, understand it and what God has done in my life that I come into the happy enjoyment of freedom in Christ. Apprehend the grace that has reached you and appreciate the place that you have in God's sight. Remember that famous quote from R.C. Chapman? He was referring to people who went around moaning about what poor Christians they were and thought that this was humility to be talking about how sad examples they were of Christianity and, and how many failures in life and how little like the Lord. And He said, if we were to grasp what we are in Christ, we would speak 10 times about our worthiness in Christ compared to our unworthiness in ourselves. So appreciate the place you've been brought into. Listen to the repetition of this word when it comes to God and his son. At his baptism, the Lord Jesus is coming up out of the waters and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In his life of service, prophetically God said, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, mine elect, in whom my soul delights. Come to the man of transfiguration and listen to the voice from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see that relationship? That everything God desired, he found in Christ. In whom? In whom? In whom? In this person. Now God turns around and uses the same language about Christ and you. And so he writes to you. In whom? We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. In whom? Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In whom? We are built together for an habitation of God. In whom? We have obtained an inheritance. In whom? We have boldness and access with confidence. Do you see that God has so inseparably, inextricably linked you with Christ that he sees you in him, in him, and that nothing and no one can break that link? I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. You know what else is on those hands? Sure you do. And God cannot look at you without thinking of Calvary. And God cannot look at you without seeing you through his son, in whom. So here is how doubts are resolved. They are resolved as I embrace doctrine, truth from God. Isn't that what rings in John's writings? We know, we know, we know the Son of God has come. We know that he has given us life. We know that we have eternal life. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Catch it? The, the language of certainty ringing throughout John's writing? We know. Why is that? Because it's based on doctrine. So allow me in closing to think with you about replacing despair. This is how doubts are destroyed. So I would like to suggest to you this. Instead of mulling over your unworthiness, replace that by thinking of the worthiness of Christ and the value of his blood. Something was accomplished at Calvary between divine persons that required no contribution or participation from you. In the darkness, God and his son were dealing with something. Do you know what they were dealing with? Let me apply it to myself. God and Christ were dealing with my sin and myself and my sentence, my sin. Do you remember when a man would bring an acceptable offering? What was the statement? It shall be forgiven him. It shall be forgiven him. If the sacrifice was acceptable, there was no question about the character of the man or anything like that. He had the acceptable sacrifice. He goes away with forgiveness. Do I have a sacrifice acceptable to God? 
Well, my sin was being dealt with at Calvary, and that lamb is my sacrifice, and he dealt with my sin. I'm so glad to tell you he dealt with myself. How many believers imagine that means that when you get saved, then you ought to be perfect. You ought to be sinless. You shouldn't have any of the old impulses. You shouldn't have any of the old desires. But the great truth of Romans 6, of course, is that God has cut me off by means of death and resurrection from all that I was as a sinner in Adam, and he has brought me into a living, resurrected link with his beloved son so that God no longer looks at me as I was. That chapter closed. That book is done. And a new book has started. God sees me in Christ. The prism through which he looks at me and you is through Calvary. And he dealt with my sentence. That's why he said to the Israelites in the book of Exodus, the blood shall be to you for a token. We often preach in the gospel, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. But he told the Israelites to look to the same place he was looking. If you want to know if you're saved, check if the blood is on the door. Because you see, if the blood was on the door, then the sentence was gone. Viewing the blood on the door directed Israelites to the same thing that had satisfied God. Instead of mulling and and thrashing over our failures and our unworthiness, think about how worthy Christ is and how valuable his work is. Instead of thrashing over our uncertainties and doubts, replace that by thinking of the certainty, the unquestionable, immutable certainty of the word of God. We remember, of course, phrases like this, that God cannot lie. God is going to bring to heaven every guilty soul for whom Christ died who trusted the Savior. And you can't change his mind. You can't. Because he's not like us. So, instead of bemoaning our weakness in Christian living, think of the power and victory of the Lord Jesus. Do you realize that if you were to perish, it would signal a defeat for the great Redeemer? It would mean that he would have failed to keep one of his sheep. Do you think that's possible? It would mean that he would have forfeited part of what he calls his body. Do you think that's possible? It would mean that he would have forsaken one who makes up what he calls his bride. Do you think that that's possible? That is why Isaiah says, because God is my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid. Why? Because God is my salvation. Because it's all linked with him. I do not need to have any fear. That is why John writes, perfect love casts out fear. The more I understand the perfection of God's love, the more fear and doubt will be driven from my heart as I realize this is all in the hand of an infinite God. So, if you're saved and you have wondered, am I saved or am I not saved? Would you please allow me to say this? If eternal life is the gift of God, then assurance is the card that goes along with the gift. The card says that it's for you from a loving God. Why don't you just take it and rest in his love and enjoy the fact that you have been inseparably linked with the Lord Jesus? If you belong to Christ, you are as welcome in heaven as he is because you are accepted in the beloved. And if you belong to Christ, the day will come when you will find yourself in heaven, welcomed home by a God who says he is your father because Christ is your savior. Well, how tremendously important that we understand the teachings and doctrines about salvation in the Bible, just as Mr. Higgins has described. Yes, eternal life. It's the gift of God, but assurance of eternal life is the card that goes along with the gift. But we need to read the card and know exactly what it is that God is saying to us. It is understanding what God says about his great salvation that gives us the solid foundation that we need. We trust that today's broadcast has given you the direction you need as a Christian to get into your Bibles and discover the wonderful rest and assurance that Christ can give.
If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by believers in Christ who are meeting at various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday as well as other meetings such as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken and a very warm welcome awaits you. If you've been challenged by today's message and would like to know more about the truth of the gospel or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, take a look at our website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the gathering center nearest you. My name is John Sharp, and thank you once again for listening, and we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that Christ alone is the anchor for the soul. <laughs>